coming up in this episode of the Ziggler show at Chipotle. We had a, we had a big vision at Chipotle, uh, you know, and it was to change the way people think about meat, fast food. Okay. So when you hire someone who's perhaps it's their first job, okay. Perhaps they're 19 years old. You come in and you say, and let's say it's you, Kevin, Kevin, you're a 19 year old person. This is your first job. I'm going to pay you, you know, 15 bucks an hour, whatever they pay now. Right. Kevin, congratulations. You have the job. You know, what's neat, Kevin, what I want you to do, is I want you to change the way people think about and eat fast food. Now, if I say that to you, you're probably going, ah, cool, man. You know, but it's not going to be in your heart burning a hole in you. You're not going to go, yes, because you don't know what that means to you. Okay. And now I can explain what it means to the world. Hey, we're going to get food from more organic sources. We're going to change the way farming is done. We're going to have a huge impact on animal welfare by getting animals that are treated well. We're going to, and you might go, cool, cool, cool. That sounds good. But it's not going to move you yet because you don't really understand the nexus between you, your efforts, and doing that huge vision. Welcome to The Ziggler Show, a top-ranked all-time career podcast in Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this show, we expound on Zig Ziggler's be, do, and have philosophy, meaning you have to be the right kind of person and do the right things before you can expect to have what really matters in life. And we want you to have what matters. Also, check out my podcast, What Drives You, where we talk with people who have reached impressive achievements to ask what drove them, good and bad. And we dig into the very motives that drive us all with the goal of clarifying just what is driving you. Then in my True Life podcast, we want to get you fully functioning physically so your body doesn't hold you back. You can find all three of my shows in Apple Podcasts. Just search for Kevin Miller or go to my website, kevinmiller.co. And if you're new to The Ziggler Show, I invite you to visit ziggler.com. Connect with Tom Ziggler and the Ziggler family about upcoming events and how they can come alongside you and help you inspire your true performance. In this episode, I'm joined by Monty Moran. He's a former co-CEO of Chipotle. He joined them when they had eight stores and he left after there were somewhere north of 2,500 stores. Their valuation had grown from a few million to 23 billion over his decade with the company. What's interesting is how he cites the key to success coming from one-on-one conversations with employees and connecting the company mission to theirs. And that's the point that we want to hear today. And he did this 20,000 times. Uh, It sounds altruistic, but look at Chipotle's ridiculous success. I mean, in our businesses, we're told we need a mission, right? A why, as Simon Sinek teaches, and then communicate that to our employees, get them all on, on board and fired up. But do they really care about our mission, the company's mission? They care about their personal mission. And that's what Monty connected to. Uh, And it's what we discuss in this episode. It's the crux of his book, has one of my favorite titles ever. Love is free, guac is extra. This is brilliant. Uh, And this is cool too. You can go to loveisfree.com. And if you buy the book there, he'll write whatever you want in it and send it to you. Monty lives up in Boulder, Colorado, not far from me, a couple hours. A few weeks ago, I was actually in Leadville on a getaway and he flew over in his little plane and we had a three and a half hour breakfast together, just talking about ideas to change the world and getting to know each other. Just a quality, enthusiastic, insightful guy. I'm so glad to bring this message to you right now.
Hey, I got to start off saying just the title of the book, Love is Free, Guac is Extra. It's just, it just makes me laugh. It's just a funny title. Who came up with that? I want, I want to know. So David Chrisman, who really? you've interacted with. Okay. You know, it's funny. I, let me give, let me give two, uh, credit to two people. So David Chrisman came up with that title. Uh, he came up with the title, um, Guac is Extra, Love is Free. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I don't know. It's like, that makes, it's kind of a joke. And I don't want it to, I want it to be kind of serious too. And, 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 uh, you know, and then we talked to the guy who was helping us with marketing the book and he's, and we, you know, we gave him like 30 titles, you know, to choose from. And he was like, oh, there, there's only one, there's only one choice. And it's, you know, guac, guac is extra love is free, you know? And I'm like, oh God, okay. I'm not quite there yet. You know? And then my, um, a friend of my, my son, Michael has a friend named Johnny, uh, Johnny Garcia and Johnny, Johnny goes walking by, um, and said, uh, Hey, is that, and he just saw like a mock-up of it, you know, cause we did like a little mock-up yeah. of the cover and he goes, oh man, is that like the title for your new book? I go, yeah. I go, yeah. And it said, guac is extra. Love is free. And, and, and I, yeah. What do you think? And he goes, I guess it's all right. I probably should switch it around. Love is free. Guac is extra. And he goes walking off, you know? And so I was like, That's so it, I, I just let it, I didn't want to like say that to Dave right away. Cause I wasn't sure. And then a week later I go, oh, no, you know, Johnny Garcia, he said we should switch it and say, love is free. Guac is extra. And Dave goes, that's even better. You know, so it was like that, that easy. It is uh, a that. great, that's a great story. So I was texting yesterday with, uh, with David and it was, you know, I'm sitting here looking through your book and looking through your stuff and saw somewhere on, I, I assume Facebook, cause we post questions there for Q and A's and I sent it to him. Uh, and it was, it said, don't let anyone treat you like free chips and salsa. You are guac baby. <laughs> I thought, that's just, wait, no, wait, where'd you see that again? I think it was Facebook or something. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I don't that's even know. Funny. I just pulled it over and shot it to him and said, Hey, I think this sounds appropriate for you guys. Uh, yeah. well, you know, it's, it's fun. I mean, looking at all you're doing and, you know, reading through the book, looking at your new PBS show and everything that you are, I'm going to say espousing as far as leadership. And I really wanted to, I'm, I'm so curious, how do people come to these realizations and understandings? You know, how did you get there? And I think I pulled it out of your book. It said, you know, from his teenage days befriending homeless people at Colorado Dairy Queen. You know, what led you, what was home life like? I, I know I read about your love for your father, but you also talked a lot about you know, insecurities, fear, pain, heartbreak. What brought you to this perspective that you ultimately then brought into a successful law firm and then Chipotle? Well, if I had to say anything, I'd say curiosity. And so then the question becomes, well, why'd you become so curious? Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in the mountains outside of Boulder and it was a beautiful place. I mean, there was a, you know, the air was clean. There were a lot, there's a lot of wildlife, there was space. Um, uh, and, uh, my dad and my mom were both really into being out in nature. So, uh, and, and they didn't watch TV. Uh, we had a little black and white TV, but no one watched it except my brother. Once he started watching it, he watched a lot of it and I got frustrated because I lost my brother for many hours a day sometimes. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so my parents were just these real curious, outdoorsy people who love nature, love the environment. They were really, really uh, curious spiritually. They were kind of spiritual seekers, I would say, in the sense that they were both, I would say, you know, born and raised Christian, and they were both still Christian. Um, but they were reading books on, you know, they were reading books like by Carlos Castaneda and books like on Zen and Buddhism and 
transactional analysis. I remember there was a bunch of books on that laying around the house. And they were the unsafe Christians, uh, as far as the church would, would say. Yeah, they and you know, and they went sometimes went to church, sometimes didn't. They switched churches every now and then. There was no affiliation with one church that lasted forever. Uh, we went to Unitarian sometimes, Presbyterian sometimes, Episcopalian sometimes. Um, and they were people who, uh, my mom's still alive, so I don't want to act like it's all in the past, uh, are, 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 were people then who were just really curious and seeking and wanted to obtain knowledge and wisdom from wherever they could get it. And at the same time, uh, as they were seeking through sort of these books and everything, they also had uh, this incredible group of friends. Um, my dad was a cell biologist. Uh, he was He went to uh, Princeton undergraduate school, and then he got his uh, PhD at, at, at Brown University, and then he went to Harvard for his postdoctoral fellowship. So he came from, he had this sort of lineage of these sort of big, prestigious schools and had been around a lot of really smart people. And in fact, he came to Boulder with a guy named Dr. Keith Porter, who was my dad's mentor at Harvard uh, doing his postdoctoral uh, work. And uh, he, he, he and Keith Porter came out and began at the same time to work here at the University of Colorado um, where there's actually a building named after Keith Porter called Porter Biosciences mm-hmm. here in, in, at CU. And then my dad went to the medical school to teach the medical school. And so that's how we came to even be in Boulder. And my dad uh, was raised in New York and just didn't, didn't like the city at all, wanted to be out in nature. In fact, if he had had his way, he'd be an American Indian. He always wanted to be, he always uh, had huge reverence, enormous reverence for, for, um, for Indians. And, uh, and so I grew up learning all about, you know, what people now call Native Americans. Uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of them. They just want to be called first people or natives. Um, but well, whatever you want to come. I actually watched your PBS show on, on that. And uh, I have two adopted daughters uh, who oh, are cool. Native American. So, oh, awesome. Yeah, we've spent, spent a lot of time on the tribe. Yeah, and that's always a funny thing. So I'll still say Indian. So my older biological kids will correct me. I said, come on, our, our, our Native American family calls themselves Indians. Give me a break. But yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so, but, so whatever you want to call them. But, but anyway, so huge reverence for, uh, for those, for that group of people who had a huge reverence for the environment. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I, I grew up in this sort with these wonderful parents in this wonderful place who had enormous curiosity. And so uh, asking questions, wanting to know more, wondering uh, were things that were expected. Um, you know, I, like I said in my book, it did drive my dad crazy how many questions I asked. Cause my dad, both my mom and dad were a treasure trove of information but my dad was, uh, you know, I mean, I'd come at him with all these questions and, and he'd answer, you know, and then I'd say, but what about this? But what about this? And sometimes he'd say, you know, you're coming at me like a lawyer, you know, and it was really clear. My dad hated lawyers. Yeah. Look, what, look, what I, look what I became, by the way. <laughs> I, I saw that. Um, yeah. It's weird how that happens. Um, but he like was like, oh, lawyers are always, you know, bickering and arguing and trying to make it, you know. And so he said, you're coming at me like a lawyer and cross-examining me, he used to say. And I'd be like, oh, you know, so I learned, I still wanted to ask him a million questions. So I learned to do it more skillfully. You know, I learned to sort of extract the information from him. And, and, and how do you do that? Well, you know, you learn a way to treat him with sort of great, great respect. Uh, you learn a way to come out. I'm like, hey, you know, wow, you know, dad, so I was just wondering, I see how you do this. And, and so what, why is that? You know, and then he would answer with sort of like, I came at him like he was a guru, you know, with this sort of delicateness. And I, and I really tried to gauge his mood at the moment in terms of how I'd approach him. Because sometimes I could see he was in a great mood and really approachable. And I could ask him whatever I wanted. And other times I could see that I'd have to approach him with, with skill. And I learned to, I guess, accommodate his maybe tendency to be defensive, his tendency to be offended, his tendency to be um, <clears throat> critical of right. me. 
or the way I came at them. And so I kind of learned to not offend and I learned to not be, uh, to, to eliminate behaviors that he might be critical of. And I sort of learned to accommodate him and accommodating my dad was hard because my dad, um, was quick to think that people were generally sort of, well, vile is too strong a word, but my dad was quick to kind of think that people were, um, uh, not particularly savory. And so I didn't want to be unsavory. You know, I didn't want to be someone he thought right. was unsavory and to be someone he didn't think was unsavory was, was a tall order. You know, I mean, uh, cause as a kid, you know, he, he, he didn't like a lot of things about me. I mean, he'd be like, you know, you, you know, Hey, you talk too loud, you interrupt, stop interrupting. You know, and I, I interrupted a lot and I talked too loud and I had a lot of energy and I had way too much curiosity and I didn't ever want to sleep and my hands move a lot and my body moves a lot. And, and I was just sort of an unquiet sort of soul. Yeah. And he was a quiet sort of soul. And, um, and really, uh, and sort of, he sort of, uh, he played instruments, lots of instruments. He played the, the violin really, really well. He played the fiddle. He was a bluegrass fiddler. He played the mandolin, banjo, guitar, uh, you know, flute, penny whistle, piano, uh, steel guitar, banjo, uh, you know, mandolin really well, you know, and he played all that. And he would just play alone. He'd just sit there in a room playing and he sounded great. And I loved listening to it, but that's the kind of solitude he needed to develop. I, I have a, I, I also like solitude sometimes, but I didn't have a need, the need for it. Certainly at that age, I didn't have the need for it at all. I was just running around wanting to talk to him or my mom. Well, and, that's, was- and that's what I was fishing for. So you obviously, you know, got some of this in your upbringing then. And I don't want necessarily want to pass over anything and come right up to you pursuing law, but your story is coming into that law firm and doing things differently, creating a different culture. Was that just... It's just your nature or was there a realization point along the way of, oh, this, I think this is a beneficial tactic strategy to take into business and do things differently. And it's, it's a decided thing or again, just happened to be you. You know, I think it happened to be me. And, and I'll tell you, in terms of what it took to write that book, there's no way I could have written that book before creating that culture at the law firm. In other words, I did what I did. But I didn't necessarily know why I was doing it or how to describe what it was that I was doing. It was just what I was doing. But it was born out of, really, it was born out of, the, I think, a few things. One is the curiosity that, that I've already discussed. But another is um, that I, and this is actually another manifestation of curiosity, I've always looked at other people with, uh, with huge admiration for what they know and who they are that I'm not. Okay, And so anytime I meet someone, and it doesn't matter who they are. Uh, a homeless person, as I describe in the book with the guy named Will, I met at Dairy Queen, a homeless guy I started talking to and became really close with. Um, he taught me so much. I mean, because this guy came from an absolutely different walk of life than anyone I had ever met before. I mean, he was homeless, had, did not have his parents, or he wasn't in touch with his parents. He wasn't in touch with any family. He didn't have any money. He didn't have a place to live. Uh, he, uh, he struggled with a lot of things sort of uh, mentally. And he was a, a brilliant guy with a treasure trove of information that I could never have had otherwise. So I've always had the tendency to look at everyone with kind of reverence. You know, maybe it started with having to treat my dad with reverence to get information. But but then that coupled with my curiosity, everyone I meet, everyone I meet, you know, I meet them and I look at them initially like as someone who has so much that I don't. And almost immediately as I start talking to them, I find that they've got I'm jealous in a way, but in kind of a nice way, jealous, but it's more curious, like, wow. You know, uh, you know, if some I met a guy once who climbed Mount Everest, I said, oh, my God, you climb on it. Holy crap. 
I mean, like, how did you do that? You know, and I wanted to know what led you to do that. Why did you want to do it? Why did you have the guts to do that? I mean, wasn't it scary? Wasn't it cold? You know, I mean, so I've just got this sort of, you know, curiosity going on in here. And, and sometimes I can temper it and be a little more stupid well, when I ask questions. Part of that, part of that that comes out. And by the way, I just happened to watch some show that caught my eye called same, uh, not a show, a movie, uh, same kind of different as me. That ring about huh. Greg Kinnear, no. you know the the, the actor Greg. Oh Kinnear. yeah, yeah, I know Greg. I've heard and it's him. him and a homeless guy. He's a wealthy uh, art dealer, and he kind of befriends a homeless guy. And it's somewhat of that story. It's, the, it's called, what is it called again? Same kind of same kind of different as me. It was 2017. Wow. I, I, oh wow! Really was it good. Yeah, it was just interesting in that that he to see what he gleaned from this homeless guy that you know to completely different characters and so for you to cite your own story uh yeah might be might be of interest but you talking about being curious i mean a key piece of well and, and how you uh i must say respected other people's knowledge and value my first thought that came to mind is is humility and yeah I mean, that yeah. is but that is not a i mean right now as we talk that is uh, we're not in a humble culture. No, 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 we're not. And, you know, I remember it just, uh, it was about 15 years ago. I met this wonderful guy named, named <clears throat> through a friend uh, named Doug Coe, and he's passed since. Um, but, you know, I was talking to him for a long time and he asked me what you did. And I, uh, what, what do you do, Monty? And, and I told him what I did and everything. And I talked about Chipotle. And at that time I was still CEO of Chipotle. And I and then, and then, and then about an hour in, he said, God, you're so humble. And I said, humble. I've been talking about everything I do. I'm talking about me and what I do. And he said, you don't even know what humble means. And I was like, well, what does humble mean? And, and humble, he said, well, humble means you're not about you, you know, you're about mm -hmm. others. And I had never even noticed that, um, you know, I, I, I don't think I'm not about me because boy, I, you know, I hope that I stay healthy. I hope that I have a good life. I hope that I have good friends. And, you know, so I think about me and what I want, but, but I guess I look at other people as sort of magnificent teachers, all of them. And, and maybe most of all, I look at the people who, well, I don't know. I'm just thinking of what popped into my mind right now is this passage from the Bible that talks about the least of us. Mm -hmm. So let's just say you say the least of us. And, and I, I, I dislike that term in a way because I don't think there's the least of us are the least of us. In other words, I don't think there are ordinary people. You see, the in fact, the ordinary less, people are the most extraordinary. Yeah, the least fortunate, maybe. I, I, I'm yeah, so but enamored even with then, but, even, but even then, they're more fortunate in some way. You know, so, okay. but, yeah. but I'll say it this way. The people who, whom our society looks at as being the most important people, yeah. presidents of the United States, congressmen and senators, businessmen and women, uh, you know, great leaders. Those people are certainly interesting, but generally I learned so much more from, from that man, Will, who was a homeless man at Dairy Queen. I learned more from people who have had real struggle, real difficulty, overcome extraordinary challenges and handicaps and, and, and obstacles, you know, I mean, that's where I've learned so, so much. So I look at people from all walks of life, let's say, um, as extraordinary teachers. I look at all of them as being my sort of my guru. And I think that when you look at someone as being your guru, let's just say a homeless person, yeah. for example, who's not used to even being respected by people. OK, not even used to having people look at them in the eye, not looking at not not having people even think that they have anything to offer them. And if you look at that person as your guru, as your teacher, as someone valuable, important, incredible, um, who, 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 whose help you need, you know, what does it do to that person? Well, the, the answer is it promotes that person to the position of being your teacher. Okay. That person all of a sudden feels needed, special, important, valuable, and loved.
and they blossom in front of your eyes. And in that blossoming, what do they, what do they do? Well, they give, 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 they give information, they give knowledge, they give, they give love back. And, and it's extraordinary, the kind of interaction that that fosters. So, so I guess that comes across from me as humble because people now, especially sort of see me as, wow, you know, wow, you're, you're quite a business leader. You've had a very successful career and they, and they, I think people impute goodness on me because I've had what society considers to be success. Right. And, and, and that's great. I'm, I'm, gra- I'm grateful for that. And that's wonderful. And I do feel like I've been very, very blessed and I'm, and I'm grateful for the, the stuff I've been able to, to accomplish in this life. But, but um, you know, when I sit down with someone, as I did, and I discussed this in the book, when I sat down with 25,000 people during my time at Chipotle one-on-one, they'd always be like, wow, man, you're, you're just like a normal guy. You know, you talk, I can't believe you're talking to me like this. And I'd be like, well, I can't believe you're sitting there talking to me. This is great. You know, and they'd be like, well, come on. You know, I'm like, no, you know, it's like, so I look at them, you know, with the kind of reverence that they probably look at me that I, you know, they look at me with some kind of maybe respect or uh, whatever you call it. They look up to me maybe because I'm in this senior position and I'm the CEO of the company, whatever, but I'm looking up to them because I've never met them before because I know they're different because I see something immediately in them. That's beautiful. That's different. That's unique that I want to understand. And I want to know what wisdom they are living by that perhaps I can gain from. And, and maybe then I can also share with them something that maybe can help them. And, but that mutual interaction, that connection to me is everything. That's what life's about. And, and I am all about trying to harness the power of people. You are listening to The Ziggler Show in this episode with Monty Moran. And next, I ask Monty about his past of insecurity and heartbreak that he talks about. And he shares more on how his relationship with his father caused some of that, but it led also into his efforts to connect with people. On the aspect of curiosity then, and I mentioned this a minute ago, you you do talk about uh, multiple times I saw it, you just your own self doubt, your own insecurity, your own fear, pain, well, heartbreak. <clears throat> where, yeah. Well, first off, where did that, obviously we can see how that adds into you relating to other people, but where did that come from? From why was that the interaction with your dad? Where did you, I think that's probably a lot of it. Um, you know, I, I think, um, well, I had a wonderful relationship with my dad and later in life, we were really close. Well, we were always close in the sense that I always loved him and sort of revered him. But I always felt like I was um, having to walk on eggshells a bit around him, you know. And, and, and that stemmed from the fact that I didn't really feel that he really liked me. Hmm. And when, you're, when you don't feel like I, I kind of knew he loved me, like I knew he'd take care of me. And but I didn't always knew he liked me very much. Hmm. And I think sometimes he didn't like me uh, very much. I was loud. I interrupted him. I disturbed his peace. And he wanted a lot of peace and I didn't give much peace, you know, <clears throat> and, um, and I didn't really relent on that cause I was a kid. What the hell? I didn't know yeah. how to, yeah. but I, I, I developed methods of sort of stuffing me in a box and being more careful and more, and more, you know, I guess shrinking my personality, trying to shrink myself. And if you're trying to shrink yourself, why are you trying to shrink yourself? Well, it's cause you don't like you. Like, in other words, instead of deciding he didn't like me, which would have been too painful to handle as a kid. Like I never decided he didn't like me as a kid. But I felt unliked. And if you feel disliked as a kid, what are you going to do? Since you need the love of your parents, you need that, right? You're going to dislike in yourself those things that perhaps your father disliked in you or that my mother disliked in me. You know, I don't, I can't think of as much where she disliked something in me, but you know, I think all of our parents, 
you know, inadvertently, you know, quote unquote, do this to us, right? You know, they like aspects of us and we try to, and, and maybe we promote those and they dislike other aspects of us and maybe we try to shrink those. Yeah. I mean, that's part of parenting. So I'm not saying that I was in some highly dysfunctional family. I wasn't. I was in a relatively non-dysfunctional family, but yet I think my dad sort of disliking me caused me to to suppress those aspects of myself that, that, that I knew he wasn't responding well to. And then I think I also learned to accommodate him. And in learning to accommodate him, who was very difficult to accommodate, I think I learned to accommodate everybody in the world hmm. pretty well. And, and while that sounds like a good thing, and it is, like I know how to act at dinner and I'm not gonna be the guy who people said, oh, the guy was a jerk. So I know how to accommodate, but it also in, in accommodating others, you're also in some respect, sometimes giving yourself away. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I think that, uh, in some ways, I find it very hard to like myself. I find, I, I find it almost impossible to think I did a good job at anything. I mean, really. So, and people are like, oh my God, you, oh, don't say that. You always say that about yourself that you didn't, but, I, but I, I really mean it. I really feel like I don't do a good job almost all the time. And that sucks in a word. It's no fun. Well, it's a part. big topic I want, I want to pull out there because I am, I'll say I'm somewhat enamored in regards to myself and with so many other you know, successful people with imposter syndrome. And I, yeah. I can look at it now with awareness and, and recognize, you know, in a certain thing like this, you know, I, I mean, I still get nervous with podcasts. I've done a thousand, uh, and yeah. I, I get, you know, I've been very successful at it. I know I do a good job. I know I'm going to do a good job. Why do I get nervous? And why do I kind of feel like an imposter? See, I don't know that I'm going to do a good job and I don't know, but that you, I do do, a good but job. you've seen, uh, I mean, you know, you've, you've seen results that you can't. Yes. Deny. So in the rear view mirror, but it's weird. This is where I'm really stupid. Okay. I can look in the rear view mirror and go, man, that was great. We kicked ass and think that I'm still like, let's just say I've had a lot of success in my life. Let's say I've had, you know, just pick a number, a hundred wins in a row and no losses right. in life. It's not true. I've had losses. We've all had losses. Right. But if I just look back at my record and say, man, I've got a hundred and zero record. It doesn't seem to do anything in my brain to give me confidence that it's going to be 101. You know, which is, so I've just got this, I've got this circuit that's missing yeah. and I can even talk about it and I can even recognize it consciously and tell you that, yeah, I've done, you know, I mean, I had someone I met recently named Gary Heil, really neat guy, wrote a book called Choose Love, Not Fear. And I learned about his book and they came out at almost the same time. It was kind of cool. They both had love in the title yeah. and his book has a lot of in it that I have in my book. I mean, a lot of con concepts, you know, this love thing, right? I mean, he's, he understands love and leadership. So we become really close friends. And, you know, and I said, God, I'm really worried about this speech coming up, this certain speech I was doing. And he goes, Monty, when have you failed at anything? And I was like, oh, well, I, you know, I don't know. And he's like, Monty, you haven't failed at anything. You're not going to fail at this. And, I was, and to him, it was that simple. And I could listen and I could hear the logic and what he was saying. And I could appreciate it and even feel good for that moment. Oh, God, thank you, Gary. Okay, thank you. Okay, I feel better. But somehow the circuitry, you know, in me is like designed to believe I'm going to fail. All and, right. you know, and maybe that gives me some motivation to work harder, try harder, strive harder and do better. But it also gets in my way. It also sometimes causes me to doubt God, you know, to, in a word, okay. it causes me to doubt. And, and if I'm busy doubting, I'm not flowing as well. And if I'm not flowing as well, I'm not as good. You, okay. Continuing this thread is something I pull. I don't even know. I, I've just got some in my notes and I didn't source where I got this from, but you, I pulled it out. And I don't know if it was something that somebody said to you or you said to somebody else. And it said, your primary weakness is your effort to appear so damn strong. Yeah. I think it just jumped out to me because, again, looking at the culture, looking at my own trajectory, I mean, that is 
I mean, we're bred to do that. You are bred yeah. to be strong, to act strong, and to say your primary weakness is your effort. Because I think it resonated with me because as I, I think you're in your 50s, aren't you? I, I, hey, you know what? It's my birthday. I turned 55 today. Oh, happy, really? Happy <laughs> yeah. birthday. The double nickel. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honored. I'm extra honored that I got time oh, well, on your uh, birthday. We should well, go, thank you go so get much, a burrito together. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> We, uh, so I'm, I'm 50 and I, and I look and there have been a few times really even in the past five years, Monty, where I've realized one that I'm obviously, I have proof that I am not so strong, not that I'm, you know, weak and terrible, but I'm obviously not, I'm not super, none of us are, I'm not God. (laughs) And, and it's wearing me out to try to be that. And I'm seeing this piece over here not having to be, but again, it's so, you know, that you're so countercultural and when we're talking about humility and leadership, I mean, they just don't generally blend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what's funny is when you talk about God, money, I'm not so strong. And I talk about Kevin, I'm not so strong. What's uh, what's the grand irony here? Okay, and this oh, it's this wonderful thing about growing older and maybe a bit wiser. I hope is that when you start realizing I'm not that strong, I'm but but not not. I'm being humble. I'm not that strong, but I'm really not that strong. Like I'm like, I'm just this guy, you know, but when you start to realize and let down your guard and go, Hey, I'm not that strong. Everybody, what you're really doing by doing that is sort of trusting in God. And and I don't even mean, I'm not even trying to get like God, like some God, like the Christian God. I mean, when I say God, by the way, I mean, truth, love, and God to me are the same thing. Okay. So if you trust in some people say the universe, if you trust in, um, Providence, if you trust that there's something greater than all of us, that is generally positive, okay? So that thing greater than all of us that is generally positive is God, okay? That thing greater than all of us that is generally positive is love, and it is the truth. So if you start releasing the need to be so damn powerful, what happens is you become more vulnerable. And in that vulnerability, there's space. And in that space, nature abhors a vacuum, right? That's a principle of physics, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. If there's a vacuum, nature seeks to fill it, right? If you put like a, a something with a vacuum outside, it rusts, and then she, air zooms in, okay? So nature abhors a vacuum. That's a saying, all right? But in that space you create with vulnerability, you've created a vacuum. What's going to fill that vacuum, Kevin? Well, truth, love, God, because that's what's there. I mean, that's the stuff that's out there if we get the hell out of the way. If we stop having to be so strong and big and powerful, then there's infinitely greater power outside of us that we can harness and that, and that we can start to channel and become aware of and learn from and, and, and use to help us in helping others. Okay, that's, that's interesting, Monty, for you to say it in that perspective. I recently had a counselor. Uh, talking about about some of this issue, and he hit on just the the efforts to be strong. He's actually using the word to be per, per, to be perfect, and uh, and I said something to the effect of, "Yeah, learning to have grace for myself." And he yeah. hit on that, and he says, "Okay, but that means you're still having grace with the presupposition that you're supposed to be perfect. What about instead just accepting yourself as you are?" Right. I I don't really have a file for that. Because right. the, no, most of us don't, the point is to, to better, to become better. I mean, which, and that doesn't negate that. I mean, we got to come better, kind of, but to be, here's what's, but here's what one thing that's amazing. And okay. I'm a big effort guy. I've worked really, 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 really hard, yeah. you know, in my life. And it's, and it's 
and it's paid dividends. Okay. But yet, but yet it is the natural state for any living creature. Okay. I mean, if you think what is like, you go, what is the purpose of life on earth? Well, let's look at what every living creature does naturally, if not exposed to some disease, poison or dysfunction. All of us, our natural state is to grow, blossom, develop, and become the greatest version of ourselves. That's our natural state. That's what happens if we let life be, if we trust in it, if we, you know, I mean, if you take a, a plant, okay, and you take, let's say, a hydrangea, a flower, you know, and you plant a seed and it grows, and you give it water, and you give it light, and you give it soil, and you give it the right amount of sun and shade, uh, and, you know, it, it grows into a beautiful thing. A redwood tree grows from a tiny, tiny little seed, and it just grows. It just does. It just does it. It doesn't effort to grow. It doesn't try to grow. It doesn't see if I can grow. It doesn't work harder than the tree next to it to grow. It just grows and it grows into what light is there. It grows up to where it makes sense for it to grow. It grows to where there's space for it to grow. So, so I think that in our lives, we get sort of carried away um, with this egoic notion of becoming something. Well, we're already something. In fact, when we're first born, look at a baby in the eyes. They're like a little chip off of God. I mean, you look in their eyes and you see this bright, this love, this joy, this life, you know, this acceptance. There's no judgment. There's no darkness in their eyes. There's just beauty. It's, it's incredible, you know, and, and that's a baby who's done nothing yet, who's quote unquote done nothing yet. And it's because you don't need to do something to be beautiful, you know. Now, that being said, when you are when you allow yourself, you know, to be that, let's say, redwood seed that's going to grow, blossom, and develop, you know, it is true that it is part of life that as we get up, you know, striving and struggle are part of what we do. I mean, a redwood tree sees a forest fire. It causes struggle. It has another tree that shades over it. It causes struggle. Now the tree has to maybe turn and bend a little bit to find the light. And, and maybe it's, it's a little bend and it goes up, but it does what it does. What makes trees Redwood trees are straighter than most, but what makes trees interesting and especially beautiful is what? The ones that struggle the most and twist and turn. Think about the grapes that make the best wine in the world. You know, like if you look at the soil in Burgundy, it's, the, it's terrible. It's chunks of limestone and rock. It doesn't look like you could grow anything in it. It doesn't look like you could grow a weed in it. And yet that's where the grapes that produce the best wines in the world come from because those vines struggle. And in their struggle, they create, it creates all sorts of nuance and minerality and different nu uh, nuances of, of flavor and acidity. And, you know, so, <clears throat> you know, when we look at, at this combination of things already being beautiful and growing and having a tendency naturally to go towards growth and blossoming and unfolding. And then we see that the ones that struggle become the most beautiful. Well, think about that. That means, you know, trust in what is, and then, and then as you struggle, struggle, but trust that what is will be good. Well, and then maybe there in, and we're, we're having a, a philosophical discussion here that I, I appreciate because when you say that it's a very positive scenario uh, that we naturally want to go towards the light. We want to overcome. We want to be beautiful. Obviously, a lot of people don't, though. And we, ha I mean, we we see it. you're speaking to them. You wrote a book, you know, to uh, address people and to try yeah. to pull them up. It feels like an effort, or not an effort, a uh, an advocacy to do the struggle, to do the effort. Because obviously, we cannot. We can let the shade come over and let ourselves be overcome by darkness, and we see that. And it's incredibly. Um, it's it's hard well and there's but there, but there, yeah but there's yes i agree and but there is but there, there's different kinds of struggle right there's 
there's struggle where you don't trust. Okay. Where you wake up every day and say, this is a crappy life. Everyone's an asshole. You know, and I gotta, I gotta get my share, you know, I gotta get my share. And then you go out in the world and you go out with, with an unintelligent way of struggling. You know, you go out thinking the world is your enemy. You go out with your ego running the show saying, I've got to win and they've got to lose in order for me to win. Right, you know, right. well, this is, this is, that is not true. Okay. In fact, that is an enormous dysfunction. That's like spraying Roundup on your lawn. That's a, that's a killing yourself attitude. Now, on the other hand, if you say, you know, wow, I'm, I, w- I wake up today and I'm, you know, and let's say I, I'm a very poor person who's in a lousy house, who has uh, just gotten divorced and who lost custody of my children and who, you know, is, uh, you know, it's a bad day. Doesn't seem like a good day. But if I can wake up and say, okay, wait a minute, you know, I'm still alive. My heart's beating. It's a sunny day or it's a, it's, it's a day. There's oxygen to breathe. You know, my arms work. Maybe they don't, but I've got something that works. Um, and, and you just sort of approach and go, you know, I'm going to just trust that generally, you know, there's goodness here and I'm going to see where it takes me. And yes, I'm going to get up and I'm going to brush my teeth and then I'm going to get something to eat. And I'm just going to see how this day unfolds. But if you can learn to look at the day with gratitude, if you can learn to accept that what is, is, and that you have some facility by which to change it if you don't like it. But it doesn't mean you have to complain. You just set about changing it. It's like when you get up in the morning and you want a cup of coffee, it's probably not the first thing you do to complain that you don't have one, right? If you live alone at home and you, and you have a coffee maker, you don't probably get up and go, God, I, you know, I can't believe I don't have a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. No, you just get up and you make one because you can. So instead of complaining, I don't have a cup of coffee and then making one, you just make a cup of coffee. And likewise, in life, I think it's a huge a huge benefit to us. If instead of complaining and, and, and rejecting the present moment and not trusting in the truth, not trusting in love, not trusting in God, whatever you want to call it, instead, if we can just trust that, Hey, you know what? Things are going to be okay. And oh, right now I'm going to make myself a cup of coffee. And right now I'm going to brush my teeth. Right now I'm going to get dressed. And right now I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what I can do with this day. You know, then what happens is I think that getting back to that natural state for all of us, which is to grow, blossom, develop, and become the best version of ourselves. And the best version of ourselves is something really special. All your, of us. Your coffee analogy you know, is the old story that I'll paraphrase poorly and shortly, but of the guy at work complaining about his lunch. Complaining, I can't believe same sandwich. I get the same sandwich every day. It's just just going on, and the guy next to him says, oh, "Who makes your lunch?" I do. I do. <laughs> but it's perfect. I love that. Story. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Well, so you know, obviously, you have uh, through your own upbringing, you came to this natural ethos, let's say, and you took that into initially a law firm and ultimately into Chipotle and you have, yeah, that huge number of uh, 25,000 you know, people that you sat down in front of. These are people on the line at Chipotle and uh, on to other lawyers and whatnot who you are interacting with seeking to, can I say first seeking to understand? Yeah. Was that the, but, but mar- marry that with seeking to understand period end of story or seeking to understand so that fill in the blank. So well, they- I think, you know, I think you have to come at it just to understand. First okay. of all, you have to come at it just to understand. But once you do understand, okay. So like take the people at Chipotle, I sat down with 25,000 people and I just wanted to get to know them and understand them. That was my goal. Right. But as you come to know them and understand them, what are you learning? You're learning what they like about their job, what they respond well to by way of management and leadership, which leaders seem to be having the most success in helping them on their way, which 
procedures are working best, which procedures aren't working, which design features of the restaurant are inhibiting the delivery of products to the back of the restaurant, which, which um, equipment works best, which equipment tends to break a lot, you know, which um, techniques help get people through the line more quickly to develop better throughput, what things cause us to make the food taste better. I mean, you learn all of that stuff and a lot more. In, in other words, you learn absolutely everything that you need to know to be, to be, to make excellent decisions on behalf of the company. And as the CEO, your job, make no mistake, your job is to make great decisions. I mean, that's it. You can, you can do a lot, but it's all through decision-making, right? And, and so you can make excellent decisions if you know what's really going on, if you know the truth, right? It's, so if you know the truth, you're in a position to make great, great decisions. Um, but also what you're also doing while you seek to understand people is you're demonstrating to them in a absolutely direct way how much they matter that you value them, that you care about them, that you want to see them at their best. And then while I'm sitting with them and I learn something about them that I can help correct, or I might challenge them. I might say, hey, but I have, a, I have an idea to help you through that problem because they're sharing troubles with me. They're sharing their personal problems with me. They're sharing their home life with me. They're sharing problems they've had at work and frustrations. And they might be sharing something about they've been sexually harassed. They might share something about how, uh, how, how a leader has done something that's really not good, not skillful way to lead. And I learned that. And I get to go take care of it. I get to go fix it. I get to go resolve these issues. But simultaneously, and, and then I develop a reputation, of course, that people are like, man, that guy, first of all, he's one of us. And second of all, he wants to really get to know you. And he really cares. He really likes us. Wow, he's a loving guy. Wow, our company is led by a guy who loves us. Hey, I want to work for us. I want to work harder for this company. I, I believe in the vision of this company. I, this, I want to do this for me. It's not even for him anymore. You know? So yeah. you get all these downstream effects. They're incredibly powerful uh, from, a, uh, from a psychological standpoint, but also incredibly powerful from a business standpoint. You know, all of a sudden, you have way higher margins because you get fewer people getting more done per person. You, know, you get people who are working harder, who care more, who are giving better service to the customers, who are, who are enthusiastic, and the customers can see and feel that, and the customers, in turn, feel better. I mean, have you ever gone into a restaurant where everyone seems unhappy? Well, you don't feel very good being yeah, there. Yeah. Have you ever been to a restaurant where everyone seems like they're having a great time, but immediately want to include you in that great time? You love being there. And that's what we created at Chipotle. And it was extremely powerful financially, but also spiritually. I, well, I want to keep going into this because you could say, I, I mean, I, I think people will get that. You come in with a spirit of, let's say, of actually caring about another human, which there's so many these days, which may have never had that occur in their lives ever. Period. Yes. And, yeah. and, and, and certainly not from someone in a quote unquote high position of authority. Yes. Yes. So, so you go in there and do that and we could say that, oh my gosh, you're saying the ripple effect, the butterfly effect, whatever you want to say is huge. All these things. Is it that, is it that I want the business owners out there to hear, you know, is it that simple? You go in there, you care. And then there's just a, this organic ripple effect of all goodness as opposed to, or is there some strategic intentionality that then is packed onto that? Well, okay. You, it starts with actually caring. Right. Okay. Let, let me start with a statement that I make. Um, well, I don't, I, don't, you know, I don't even think, I, is this in my book? Anyway, I don't know. Um, but anyway, um, the only source of a leader's power is that other people choose to follow that leader. Yeah. Okay. The only source of a leader's power, this is super important. No one really knows this. I mean, very few. The only source of a leader's power is that others choose to follow. Now, people might be saying, well, that's not true. I'm the CEO. They got to do what I say. Yes. They might have to do what you say or you will fire them. They might have to do what you say or you'll demote them or pay them less. But they, but they, don't, they don't have to follow you. 
Okay, that's a different thing. So management and leadership are hugely different. And almost everyone who's out there in business is managing. Managing, you know, you know you're managing when you keep having to say the same thing over and over again and it doesn't happen. But leadership is different, okay? Leadership is when you actually care about the people you're working with and you don't think of them as working for you. You think of them as working alongside you to accomplish a vision, Yeah. all right? And then so, so the, the short answer to your question is there's more about it than just caring because you have to have the skill of knowing how to lead people. But it starts by caring about them. It's, and, then it, and then it comes to developing an excellent vision for what you want to achieve, but also understanding that they need to, the people you're leading need to believe in that vision as being something that they want to achieve for themselves, not just for you. So you have to skillfully describe for them why working towards your vision is also going to achieve their personal vision that they want for their betterment, their life, their family, their future. And, and, yeah. and it's the intersection of those two things. I'm kind of picturing I'm doing that MasterCard thing, yeah, I yeah. guess, the, the Venn diagram where yeah. all three intersect. So it's that intersection of the Venn diagram where their vision and desire matches what you're trying to achieve in the business where you achieve greatness because then all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of people who for their own sake for their own desire selfishly are trying to achieve what you want also to achieve and so then you've got it and, and then you help them do that by excellent training you help them do it with great tools you help them do it with ex making sure that the people to whom they report have this enlightened style of leadership and that they're excellent leaders. Then you do it by rewarding the people who make the people around themselves better. You don't reward people just for doing a good job themselves. You reward people, especially in a growing organization, you reward people who have a positive downstream effect on the people around them, who build excellent teams, who make the people around themselves better. And you make that foundational principle, the foundational principle for the organization. And you, and you have to skillfully and carefully craft every part of the organization to be consistent with that desire and that, that um, foundational principle that each of us will be rewarded in this company or in this organization or in this church or in this country, or in this life. You can substitute any word there because it's this foundational principle right. is so perfectly true and important. Okay. And this is in my book, like five times. Each of us will be rewarded based on our effectiveness in making the people around us better. So what you can do as a leader is teach others how to be effective in leading and helping others be the best version of themselves. And that's what that book's all about. And that's something that's applicable, not at work, not at home, everywhere. At home, at work, yeah. with your children, with your wife, with your mother and father, with your friends, with your doctor, with your church, and your every. I mean, if we set about in this life to make others better, to help others be the best version of themselves, we will blossom most fully. And that blossoming will take a lot of forms. We will, you know, we'll be healthier. We will be psychologically in a better place. We will have more to give and, and, and we will certainly be financially uh, successful. And that won't even be the most important part. So uh, this is, this is that foundational principle is, is critical. You, you coming back again, back to that statement of only the only source of a leader's power is that others choose to follow. Is it fair to say choose versus obey? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, my friend Gary Heil said something I really liked uh, called um, there's no such thing as passionate obedience. Huh. I love that saying. That's, That's really great. it's so obvious. Right. I mean, you know, and, and you know what, if you want, it's just, it's just like getting someone to love you, Kevin. It's like if you meet someone and you want them to love you, I mean, you know, love me. Damn it. You'll, you love me right now. I'm in charge. You love me. 
Oh, good luck with that. Yeah, it's, it's, seriously, I'm coming up with movies again. It sounds like I watch movies all the time. Bruce Almighty. That's one of the big scenes. Yeah. And Bruce yeah, Almighty. Yeah, well, I mean, love me. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's a kid. It's it's a fun. This one of the biggest kids' movies in history is this Beast. He's got to get the woman to kiss him to become the prince again. But to actually do it, wanting to kiss him, he can't just grab her and kiss her. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so and and what does he finally do? What does he finally do? And I don't remember the movie that in a detailed way, but what does the beast finally do that gets the woman to love him? And the answer is lets her go. Or, or, yeah, he lets her go. Lets, he, he lets her go and he becomes vulnerable and he's like, yeah. look, I'm, I'm just a beast. Mm. I don't know. You know, and all of a sudden in his vulnerability, she sees sweetness. She sees something to love. She sees who he really is and loves that. And then, of course, kisses him and he's a prince and happy ever after. But this, this concept is real. This intersection, you know? uh, Monty, of vision and desire. I don't know when it was, you know, at some point back in the corporate world, which is not my, it's not my arena, not my focus that much, but you, know, you get the rah, rah, re party. Somebody got that, you know, let's have a company mission statement. And I know this is super elementary, but I know that in business today, we're still missing it. And I see it from small time, business yeah. to big business. And you do too. Here you got a book and saying, look, look what we did with Chipotle. You think everybody would go, oh, let's all do that. And of course, I'm sure you're amazed every day that people still aren't doing that in, in other businesses. And so to take and those this, businesses are failing. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So to take that, well, uh, that's why I want to hit it at what feels like a really elementary uh, level, but we all miss, you know, the common sense. It's not common anymore. So here you are, or here's a, here's the average company. They get this errant view a little bit of, Hey, I got to establish a vision, get everybody on board. And it's company focused. Here's the vision of the company. Here's how I'm going to try to convince you to come on board and be excited about the company. So uh, with all due respect, you know, come over here in Chipotle and say, how am I going to get these kids really excited about selling people burritos? How are we changing the world? I mean, we got world hunger and, you know, the environmental problems over here, climate change, whatever. And I'm going to get these kids excited about selling burritos. And I know you, I'm going to let you answer this. And I know you know how to, but I think a lot of us as business people still come to that. I'm going, really, I'm going to get people excited. I'm excited about it. I see the vision. I'm really going to do that. You're saying, so one, you've got that. How do you do that? But then the other part of it is how do you mirror what's, mo what's always going to be more important than the vision of the company is the vision that person has for themselves, which as you know, is generally never part of the corporate world. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. All of them. I mean, so the answer to, to how you do it is, I mean, people don't really, I'm, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to immediately say why it's not totally accurate. Okay. People don't want it. People don't want to change the world. That's not what they wake up doing, wanting to do every day. They don't wake up. I want to change the world. You know, that's, that's too big. They can't, they can't realistically think that they can do that. Not at least in this moment. Okay. So, and they might, well, let's just say they might say, I want to change the world when I grow up. Daddy, I want to change the world. Great, son. That's awesome. And, and they might have delusion. I mean, they might have desires for grandeur and that's cool. But what really gets someone to do something, to get someone to motiv motivates them to get out of bed, you know, it, it, it isn't necessary to change the world. It's to do something that they can do towards um, something that they want. So for instance, um, you know, if somebody, you know, is just fascinated with mountains and says, I want to be on the top of Mount Everest someday, you know, well, what do they do? Do they walk and start going up Everest? No, they're going to take some step that's going to make them stronger such that they can someday go up Everest. Yeah. They're going to start perhaps, you know, running a lot and, and getting their heart rate in shape and going to high altitude places and training there. And they're going to, and then each day when they get out of bed, do you think that that particular day they want to go run 20 miles at a high altitude? Mm. No, probably a lot of the days they don't want to do it at all. So why do they do it? Because they have a vision. 
they have a vision that someday they're going to climb Everest as a result of what they're doing today to better themselves. Okay. So right. at Chipotle, we had a, we had a big vision at Chipotle, uh, you know, and it was to change the way people think about neat fast food. Okay. So when you hire someone who's perhaps it's their first job. Okay. Perhaps they're 19 years old. You come in and you say, and let's say it's you, Kevin, Kevin, you're a 19 year old person. This is your first job. I'm going to pay you, you know, 15 bucks an hour, whatever they pay now. Right. Kevin, congratulations. You have the job. You know, what's neat, Kevin, what I want you to do is I want you to change the way people think about and eat fast food. Now, if I say that to you, you're probably going, ah, cool, man. You know, right. but it's not going to be in your heart, burning a hole in you. You're not going to go. Yes. Because you don't know what that means to you. Okay, and now I can explain what it means to the world. Hey, we're going to get uh, food from more organic sources. We're going to change the way farming is done. We're going to have a huge impact on animal welfare by getting animals that are treated well. We're going to, and you might go, cool, cool, cool. That sounds good. But it's not going to move you yet because you don't really understand the nexus between you, your efforts, and doing that huge vision. Right. So in other words, that vision wasn't the right vision for Chipotle. It was the right vision for the company, but it wasn't the right vision for our people. So I said to them, hey, here's the vision. Kevin, I want you to come work at this Chipotle, and the goal is for you to become what we call a restaurant, uh, to build a restaurateur restaurant. You know, you, uh, we want you to become part of a restaurateur restaurant. A restaurateur restaurant is a team of all top performers who are empowered to achieve high standards. We want you, Kevin, to become part of an elite team of people who care greatly for each other, who help each other be at their best, who learn how to run this multi-million dollar business and become excellent at it, who learn to treat customers phenomenally well, and who learn to be a hugely positive catalyst in the lives of the people around you. And you know what it's going to feel like when you achieve that, Kevin? You're going to have everyone here. You guys are going to be like family. You're going to be deeply, in, you're going to love each other. You're going to care about each other. You're going to be there for each other, have each other's backs. You're going to be a team that feels, you're going to want to get to work and, 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 you know, like, like you want to get home for Christmas to see your family. That's the way it's going to feel to go to work every day because that's the kind of culture you're going to build. So we want you to be part of that. By the way, let me tell you what top performer and empowerment means. Top performer means being, becoming a person, uh, you know, being, being a person who, through, you know, uh, whose constant effort um, to do something great you know, makes the people around you better, right? So I had a long definition for that. So a top performer is someone who has a desire and ability to perform excellent work and by and, and through their constant effort to do so, elevates the people around them, themselves, and Chipotle. Um, and then, but and, and, and we want you to become really empowered and to help empower the people around you. And empowered, empowered Kevin, means feeling confident in your ability and encouraged by your circumstances, such, such that you feel motivated and at liberty to fully devote your talents to a purpose. Does it sound good for you to be part of one, a culture like that? And by yeah. the way, with your help, we can, you can do it quickly. There's no time limit. You could do it in a month. Would you want to be part of that? And people were like, yeah, I want to be part of that. Okay. And in so doing, okay, in doing it and becoming part of that, what did they do? They learned to lead others. They learned to help others. They learned to build a multi-million dollar business and run it effectively. Those are skills everyone can use in life to great effect. So that's what we did, you know? And, and we, and so that's why the vision caught fire and people wanted it for themselves because it was for themselves to build this team that was a family. So if I looked at, you know, polled Chipotle workers, kind of the, I guess you can go to Glassdoor, you know, and see people's responses who work there. Is it, is it relevant to say they saw you, you got them on board and excited about this is a place it's a, it's a vehicle to help you. Well, you say that become a better version of yourself. Is that what they actually conceptualized and got excited about whether or not you guys were selling burritos? You could have been selling widgets. Absolutely. Absolutely. And listen, I, I have been out of there for four years. Okay. So like, I can't vouch for what's going on today. And people write me stories that tell me that things aren't as they wish they were. So I, I don't want to talk about that because I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't have the knowledge to do so right. well, but when I was there, yes, 
I mean, we, the survey companies came to, a, came to me and said they wanted to have a meeting with me. The survey company that checked in, you know, because we did surveys to see how things were going with our employees and so forth. The survey company was like, what the hell are you doing? I've never seen scores like this. People love it here. These are fast food jobs, you know, quote unquote, minimum wage jobs. We paid more than the minimum wage, but you know my meaning. Yeah. These are hourly positions that, that, people, that people's parents didn't uh, raise them to hope that they could be in someday. These weren't doctors and lawyers and accountants and, uh, you know, uh, these were minimum wage, quote unquote, positions. These were go nowhere jobs, historically, fast food jobs. And these people loved their jobs, loved their teams, loved the people who worked with them, loved their managers. It was like a cult, but in a good way, yeah, yeah. as my friend, as my friend David Christman always says. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so it was incredible, you know, and, and I want to just add to this, that something that keeps coming into my mind, that's kind of a non sequitur to that last sentence, which is that, you know, you asked about leaders and what do they really have to do? The, what a leader has to do is give their power away very, very, very effectively. Hmm. Okay. To become a leader, you need to give power away. We, most people to become a leader, they think I got to get power. You know, I've got to become the president of the United States, or I've got to become the leader, you know, the boss or to become the supervisor or become the manager, whatever, become the director. You know, we have all sorts of titles for higher positions. Right. I need that position. I need that power, you know, and then I'll start helping, you know, then I'll start helping the company better. Well, no, no, all of it, you need to give your power away effectively. And everyone in the world has power right now. Okay. When I sat down with that guy at 15 years old in Dairy Queen, that homeless guy named Will, and started asking him questions, and I cared about him, and I wondered how to help his life be better, and I wanted to understand him, and I wanted to learn from him. Right away, he started to grow, blossom, develop, and become a better version of himself. I didn't know why until later in life. I didn't know that what was happening was that I was using my power as an observant, caring, loving young kid to try to help this guy. And just in seeing him and valuing him and understanding him and loving him, he started to blossom because he had that attention on him. He had that care right. for him. He had that love. All of us have love to give. All of us have attention to give somebody. All of us can sit down with someone and say, hey, how can I help you today? You look sad. Are you okay? All of us can check in and try to do what we can to help somebody. And when we do what we can to help someone, what are we doing? We're giving our power to be a loving, positive person to the other person. We're giving it away. When we do that, we get more power, okay? Because that person becomes a better version of themselves and looks to us as a leader. And so when you start giving power away, you get more power. Now, what do you do with the more power? Give it away. And then you'll get more power. And then what do you do with that power? Give it away. And the more, more, the more fluently and skillfully you can learn to give power away, the more power you will get. And as you get more, your job is to give it away. Translate that now. You're because, as you said, you've not been with Chipotle for a few or for four years, and you now have a, a PBS special connected, a search for unity. So mm -hmm. explain. So here we we're hearing your. I'm going to get a call it your you know your ethos here that you're advocating. Is that what you've taken into this show just to try to spread to a broader audience? Absolutely. I, you know, I believe. Uh, well, it's not that I believe. I know, okay, <laughs> in my heart that we are all connected. Okay, we, we the whole, not just the human race, but we on earth, all of us beings on earth, we're connected. You know, we all breathe the same air. We all um, live in the same place. We all want to, we all want the same things. 
All human beings want the same things, and that's to be seen, valued, understood, and loved, okay? And have the ability also to love others and to somehow matter in the world, to be of value, to feel a sense of worthiness, okay? We all want that, that sense of fulfillment. How do you get that sense of fulfillment? Well, the answer is simple. Each of us will be rewarded based on our effectiveness in making the people around us better. You know, look at anyone you know who's, you know, later on in years, an older person, who you think is really content and happy and fulfilled. Just find anyone who's actually fulfilled. I don't mean just rich on a yacht going, yeah, this is awesome. I mean, someone who, when you talk to them, you feel a sense of fulfillment in their heart. And they will always be someone who has taken it as a major life purpose to serve and help other people. And they've done so effectively. Always. That there's no exception to that rule that I've ever seen, you know, and if and we can idealize in advertisements that soon as you're, you know, the most interesting man in the world or in that one ad or the richest guy or the guy on the yacht, that that guy's happy, but he's not. Right. Go talk to him. Okay. I'm not saying people on yachts are unhappy, but I'm saying if that's all you've got going for you is wealth and you haven't somehow achieved it by helping others, you're not satisfied. You're not fulfilled. And you don't feel worthwhile and it's no good. Richard, I just had, it was episode 38 of my What Drives You podcast. I had Richard Leiter on, uh, author. He's, the, he's called the Pope of Purpose. I think he's 75 years old or so. And he, we got into talking about that, about the evolution, the hopeful human evolution of going from I to we, which is the tribe. And, and I, I was writing about it later and thinking about, you know, that's we is, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm uh, from Texas, I'm an American, I'm a whatever associate. So we go from I to we, better than just I, but then to all of us. And that's what I hear you saying, all of us, which again is, is it feels like culturally we're really, we're really struggling as a result of not being for all of us and the cries out there, but I don't, it doesn't feel like we know how to. And, which no, is and that's the purpose. And that's the purpose of the docu series. Okay. okay, because because um, it's it's not as hard as people make it up to be. You know, the most of what we see on the media, television, radio, um, paints the picture of a divided world. Yeah. You know, where 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 black people and white people aren't getting along, where Hispanic people and black people aren't getting along, where women and men have the a sense of. Uh, dysfunction in their relationships because of power struggles. And, you know, and it turns out, you know, I mean, yes, there are some negative things in the world like racism and there is there sexism and just general meanness. Those things exist, but they are by far the exception to the rule. In general, what's really going on in this country and in this world is people love each other care about each other, want to help each other. They care a lot less about the color of each other's skin than they care about the content of each other's character. And, and so I wanted to create with this docuseries a counter narrative to show people the truth, okay? And the truth is that we, every, that we all want this, that all different walks of life, whether it be the Blackfoot Nation up in Alberta, Canada, where I went, or people in Northern Philadelphia who were dealing with the opioid crisis, or people in Brunswick, Georgia, who were, were, when I was there, were living in the aftermath of the murder of Ahmad Arbery, or people in Maine who were fishermen, or people who are on Laredo on the border wall, or, you know, any of these situations, okay? Um, <clears throat> all these people want to be seen, valued, loved, and understood. They're all struggling with different things. They all want to overcome their struggles to, to, to better themselves, their family, and the people around them. But generally, people are really good, really care, and they are not generally racist. And they are not generally uh, even th- thinking about race. They're just trying to function as well as they can in a, in a life that presents difficulties, presents obstacles, presents challenges. But we need each other. You know, we are better together. We can help each other. You know, any person who sits alone and tries to make it on their own and just tries to assuage their own ego and just develop themselves is miserable. 
Always, not sometimes, not usually, always. And so if you want to be unmiserable, and let's put it more positively, if you want to live a, life, a, a beautiful life of fulfillment, you know, you live the way most people are living or trying to live, which is to try to help the people around them be at their best and to be of value to others, of service to others. And that, that and, and it's one thing to say that in church, hey, go be service to others. But no, I'm saying if you want to be a billionaire, okay, if that's your goal for some reason, first of all, get a better goal because a goal of having money is, is, is a misguided goal because m- money doesn't really get you the things you think it will get you, okay? When you have a billion dollars, you are not therefore loved or loving. When you have a billion dollars, you aren't therefore fulfilled, okay? No relationship between money and fulfillment. Maybe an inverse one, okay? Because you start worrying about the money instead of the things that really matter. But if you want to be fulfilled, go help someone, Go show up in the world as a positive force in somebody else's life. Go, you know, try to give your power to others. And if you think you don't have any power, trust me, you do. When I was a 15-year-old kid, I had no education, no experience, no degree, no uh, title. And I was able to really make a difference in this guy Will's life. And guess what? I benefited from that usually because he taught me and I felt his love back. And, I, and he taught me, he was one of my greatest teachers of my life, this, this man who I met in the Dairy Queen 40 years ago, actually, exactly, you know, 55 today. So 40 years ago. Um, and, and he changed my life. And I didn't realize at the moment he was changing my life. And I didn't realize at the moment that he was teaching me the power of asking questions. And I didn't realize at the moment he was teaching me that giving my power to him was helping him blossom and develop. I didn't know that he was teaching me how to be a better leader. I didn't know that he was teaching me so many things, but he was. And I learned those things. And I learned those things because I was curious and I loved him and I wanted to learn from him. And in turn, he grew. And we both grew because of each other. And that's the way it works. Always. Well, let, <laughs> let, me, let me, Monty, let me see if I can connect some dots. Let me see if I can be a, a good student here. You ready? <laughs> okay. You just said, so the, literally the show is called Connected, a search for unity. You went on just a second ago to say, we need each other. We need each other. Uh, but, not but, and well, the struggle that, I, that I'm seeing that maybe you're speaking to is that we are in a culture, we know that we're uber, you know, connected, but we're not, we're not intimate with each other. We don't have uh, close relationships in our lives. We don't, in order to survive, well, gosh, again, I, I watched your, your special with, um, uh, I, I, I forgot exactly what tribe it was, Native Americans. Yeah, the Blackfoot Nation. Okay. Yeah, the, the, the blood tribe of the Blackfoot Nation. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, I watched, so I watched that. And, uh, you know, and I heard that and you go, you look back to their, you know, to the history and how much they relied on each other. And we all did, but there were, there are really tangible, uh, picture to look Example, at yeah. how much they relied on each other today to survive. We don't have to, we don't have now to thrive, to become the best versions of ourselves. And that's what I'm going to, I'm coming back to, to be a, a best version of ourselves. You're saying we need to be connected. We need unity. It feels like the struggle, the challenge of that right now, the enemy of that even is that we don't have to, I used to live, you know, my grandparents lived in a town where they had to rely on other people in order to eat, in order to survive. Today, we can all sit in our apartment, our home or whatever, and possibly work, eat, do everything we need to do without ever leaving a room. And so, well, we we don't have to, we don't have to, but we don't have to, to stay surviving that that's the, and there's my point. And now coming back to, we have to, to thrive, to thrive, to be that best version of yourself. We need to to have any sense of fulfillment, to have any sense of connection, to have any sense of purpose, to have any sense of value, um, to feel like life's worth it. Uh, we need to be connecting with and helping others. That's what, so it brings me to that. I'm looking at the title again, connected, a search for unity. And the thought that went through my mind as you were talking is I need to have a faith 
in unity of faith. If yeah. I want, so yeah, I can be over here and I can survive. I can't thrive without it. I mean, that's, that's a, it feels like big medicine for right now because we see that we're all suffering from that. We don't have to be super connected to survive. And that's You're where right. we're in. We're in survival mode <clears throat> and our depression is on a hockey stick upgrade. Yep. Our suicide. Of course it is. Our yeah. suicide. Well, you're here with me. We're, we're relative neighbors here in Colorado. And we just came out with stats that we have one of the highest suicide rates. I think, I don't know if it's overall or at least amongst teens in the country. It blows me away. Really? It's just like yeah. utopia here. Uh, and, and you know what's, and what's ironic about all this? We're looking in all the wrong places for fulfillment as a modern society. We are misguided. We are looking to all the wrong places. People's goals as young people are often the wrong goal. To get rich, <clears throat> to get rich is the wrong goal. Okay, that's a, it's, not a, it's not a helpful goal. It's not a useful goal. And if all you want to do is get rich, it's the wrong goal because people who go, have a goal of getting rich don't get rich usually. People who have a goal of giving profoundly of themselves to help others or to make something wonderful that helps others, or to have a service that helps others. Those people get really rich, okay? But, you know, you, you, we're misguided because we're, we're going in all the wrong places. The irony of all of this is that the thing that is most powerful um, to empower ourselves and the world around us is free, okay? It doesn't cost anything. Think about a turbocharger for a moment. You know, most people know what a turbocharger yeah. is, you know, while gas engines are becoming fading out to, to electric engines, you know, right now to make a gas engine more powerful, what can you do? Well, you can strap a turbocharger on it. What does a turbocharger do? A turbocharger gathers loads and loads of air, okay, which is free, doesn't cost anything. And it gathers tons of air and injects it into the cylinder to create a much, much more powerful and efficient explosion, which makes the horsepower of the engine go way up and makes car go way faster. Okay, so a turbocharger harnesses something that is free in, in, in furtherance of making an engine way more powerful. Well, guess what? So, so that's that's an analogy to leadership. What can a leader do? to make a company or his church or his family or his marriage or his anything, any group of people, even if it's just, or his friendships, way, way, way more powerful, okay? And let's just take the example of a company so we can stay focused. What can a leader do to make his company much more powerful? The answer is that leader can harness, like a turbocharger, all of the, instead of air, I would say love, and put it through a turbocharger and inject lots of love into that culture. Now, my, some people might be rolling their eyes. Oh, that's corny. Well, guess what? You know, that's what I did and worked to do at Chipotle that drove the best results like in history for a lot of years. And, and not I did, but we as a team did through this, through this vision yeah. of making each other better. We, what we were really, when I talk about making each other better, when I talk about challenging, you know, no, understanding someone, knowing them, valuing them, uh, wanting them to be at their best, uh, being committed to them. You know, th that list of things I just mentioned, that's what I always said to people at Chipotle. That's what you need to do in order to empower other people. But what is, those, what is that list of things I'm talking about, really? It's love. It's loving someone. What do you do for someone you really love? What do you do for your son or daughter, your wife, your parents, your sister, your brother? You, you know, you want to let them know you see them, that you understand who they really are, that you that you understand their struggle, that you care, that you want them at their best, that you're willing to challenge them. You're not just going to sit by while they waste their life. You want to help them and you want to help them even if they don't know what's good for them at a the moment. You know, it's, it's not always a comfortable thing, but all those things you're doing, that's how you love. That's how you use your power to love someone. Well, it's exactly what leaders and organizations need to do is use the free love that's everywhere and put it through the, the, the turbocharger of their leadership to, to, 
you know, ignite incredible power and results in their organization. So the thing that people that need to harness, it's all over the place. It's free. It costs nothing. It, it, there's an infinite amount of it. Love. And you could say God if you want, you know, but, but love is everywhere and you can just harness it and use it to empower the people around you. And that's how you make a company rip roaring successful. And I mean, money success. And I mean, growth success. And I mean, now it becomes multinational success. Any way you define success, you got to do it by harnessing the power of love. And if love is too corny for you, break it down into those things I said earlier, you know, understand, care, value, challenge, want someone to be at their best, et cetera, et cetera. That, and that's right where I wanted to go, Monty, is to have you do that because you're right. There's a lot of people who are going to hear love and it just is this ethereal, you know, yeah, that's, that's great and hippy dippy. Oh, that's and, so cute. Right. And, and whatever. <clears throat> okay. But let's take the person Let's say, let's say that Monty, because from what it sounds like you authentically, for whatever reason, Actually, we're curious about people. Back to that definition of humility, of being interested in other people. Not downplaying, degrading, minimizing yourself, but it's just an interest in other people, making them important. So this had to have happened to you uh, within your own leadership, to have other leaders who you were equipping, whether it was you know your COO or whether it was somebody down on the line, whatever, of them saying, man, I, I hear you. I just... I just don't naturally have that much interest in other people. Is it fair to say, did you find yourself saying, okay, love is a verb. So whether you feel it authentically or not, you can still do it. You can still sit down in front of somebody, be interested in them, ask them the same questions that you do, whether the feeling is there or not. And I know we could probably go here and say, hey, if you do it enough, the feeling will arise there. But even, even just, okay, okay, just go there then. That's, that's true. You were, I mean, you were kind of answering your own question, I think, in a very skillful way there. I mean, yes, it's true that I found people who I think were natural leaders. Why were they natural leaders? Because they just loved people and they were curious and they, and they delighted when they saw someone else's success. You know, those people were natural leaders. And there were, we had a lot of them. Okay. Um, I would say on balance, the 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 majority of those were people who had no experience at all. This kind of leadership is much much easier to teach to someone who is 16, 17, 18 mm -hmm. than it is to teach to someone who's 40. I mean, mm -hmm. infinitely easier to teach because they haven't learned wrong yet. Okay? It comes it, it, it makes total sense to someone who's 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 to do. It makes total sense to someone for whom it's their first job. This is like, yeah, of course. I mean, so our culture at Chipotle was easy to build from the bottom. The, mo the people who were the most difficult to convince of the power of this style of leadership were people who had led at other companies. And they, well, man, I was taught you got to you got to um, hold people accountable, you know, and you got to do performance reviews and you got to give them bonuses when they're good and punish them when they're bad and demote them when they're bad. And, uh, you know, you got to manipulate them to be good because that's what management really is. Management is about manip trying to manipulate people to be better for you, okay? Leadership isn't manipulative. Leadership is, hey, let me try to understand you and let me help you and let me, and let me give you a vision where if you work real hard towards it, you'll get something great for you, yeah. which also advances what I'm trying to achieve in this company. So that's what leadership is versus management. It's not manipulation. It's not coercive, you know? It is something that people, you, know, you, get, you, you unlock the potential of human beings to do what they wanna do with their own heart and soul. So. Um, yes, there were some people who had a hard time getting this. Okay. There were some people who were really stubborn and, and for them, uh, I would say there were some who just didn't get it. Um, but there were others who probably didn't get it, but pretended they did decently well, you know? Um, but then there were some who didn't get it, but then started to get it. And once they got it, they were like, Oh my God, 
this is a different way of living. Thank you for teaching me this. But now I'm, God, I feel so fulfilled. I've been able to help others. And some, I mean, and I get these, Kevin, I get letters every single day, multiple, where people saying, oh my God, I just wanted to thank you so much for bringing that culture to the company. It's changed my life. It's changed the way I parent. It's, I mean, these, these letters bring tears to my eyes. I mean, I'm a pool of tears every day when I read these things. Um, just got another one yesterday, a long one from a guy who didn't even work at Chipotle, but who read the book, who was a friend of mine when I was in high school. And it was this long letter. And he said, God, I, you know, I know this comes out of left field, but I just wanted to tell you what this means to me. I mean, this stuff is true and real and it works. And it's about, and it's, and it comes from the right place for the right purpose. And it's incredibly powerful. Isn't it nice when something, you know, I mean, again, you talk about love and you are at risk of people going, yeah, yeah, love, shut up, man. Let's get back right. to business and make some damn money around here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You can talk about love for a minute, but let's get back like to the important shit. Good okay? Scrooge impression. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but when you find that leading with love creates a 15,000% return at Chipotle from when I started to when I left or, you know, from the low to the high, you know, 15,000% return because of that culture where we had 75,000 people rowing in the same direction, really hard with their heart and soul in it. Hey, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, wait, what were you saying about that love stuff? Huh, maybe I do want to hear about that. Yeah. So if the only reason you want to get interested in this love stuff is because it'll make you wealthy, good. That's great. Then come read it and learn about it and do it and go get wealthy. But once you yeah. do become wealthy, which you will, if you use these techniques, you know, you'll realize, wow, I've got a lot of money, but the greatest wealth is that somebody sends me that letter. And that's what makes it feel, well, that's why you're sitting here. That's what makes it feel irrefutable because it's not just the altruistic, right thing, good thing, righteous Christian, Christian thing to do. It also made a dramatic amount of money. It was, a, it was an overwhelming unicorn success. Yeah, uh, and you know, the truth is I didn't use the word God, I love. I didn't use the word God ever as a leader, probably, ever. Uh, at Chipotle, um, because I didn't want people to feel like, uh, you know, he's talking about his God or some guy, you know, and, and I, you know, I didn't use the word love that much. What I said was make the people around you better, empower them to be at their best, care about them, understand them. Now, really what I was doing, okay, was taking all the words that make up love, okay, and using those words to be more specific, because the word love is overused and it's used incorrectly. Oh my God, I'm so in love with her. No, you aren't. Being uh, in love isn't love. Yeah, you know? I, I love that burrito. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love that burrito. Okay, okay, well, okay. Do you, you want that burrito to be its best? Then don't chew it up and swallow it, okay? Right. You know? <laughs> so right. Right. so um, anyway, um, but yeah, so people over, you know, use the word love incorrectly. So I both would like to see the word love take its proper place in modern business, but not just so people start saying, yeah, man, love is what drives us here at XYZ Company. People will be quick to use the word and not use, the, and not use it skillfully and not actually use the principles of love. Yeah. I'm talking about use the principles of love and the principles of love aren't always comfortable. Okay. If you have a parent who loves you dearly and you are a nine-year-old kid and you come home with a joint in one hand and a scotch in the other burping at two in the morning, they're probably not going to say, Oh, sweetie, I'm so glad you're home. Here's let me make your bed. Here you go. Get, they're going to be like, Hey son, sit down. This is not going to happen. Not in this household, you know, and that is not the way you're going to, you know, I have great hopes for you and I want you to be the best version of yourself and smoking grass and drinking scotch at 2 a.m. It's nine years, nine years old is not the way to go. And right. you know what? You can't, you're grounded for a month, whatever, you know, but the point is there's edge to love. Love isn't just cushy clouds. There's edge, there's discipline, there's toughness, there's rigid, there's, there's struggle. There's, you got to work hard. You know, there's, you know, I mean, we have right now, one thing I don't like about our culture, and I'm talking about this, and uh, well, I talk about this a lot of places, is, you know, 
you know, we, in our culture now, it's sort of like, Hey man, we're all great. It's all good. We all get trophies. That's not love. That's, that's just deceitful. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you want to have a great life, you have to apply yourself and yes, applying yourself in a way that helps other people is the most powerful way to develop, you know, a, a more fulfilling life, but it's hard. Wow. And it takes overcoming your own issues. It takes overcoming your own ego. It takes trying to become a better person yourself. And I talk a lot about that in the book, that in order to be a really great leader, you have to work on yourself. It's not easy. I mean, we all have egos. We all have, we all misstep. You know, we all sometimes think of ourselves instead of others and, and get it backwards. And we have to fight that and we have to work through it. And we have to try to become a healthier individual human being ourselves so that we can pass on a very healthy message and a powerful message to others. So this stuff's not easy. It's not, it's just not all clouds and hey, hey, you know, it's, it's difficult, but it's worth it and it's powerful. Well, as I think you'll appreciate, I would say from my Christian upbringing, that'll preach, man. That, that, that'll, that'll <laughs> preach. That's why you're here. I'm so grateful. It's so fun. I, I really, I got to admit, I am uh, grateful for the shows where I start off on a tangent and I don't hit uh, three-fourths of my notes because... Yeah, it's fun sometimes it's, just, to, just, to, just to go and riff on things, isn't it? <laughs> it you gave me a lot of food for thought. You know, I, I, it's interesting. I'm always looking for the clip that I'm going to put at the front of the show. I've got so many. Uh, I'm going to have to look back on and go, okay, where where uh, spirit lead me on where I'm going to tip <laughs> this off because there's so many good points. It's just, it's a message that I... Uh, I it was, again, it's why you're here, Mon. It's a message... Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I, I to that. use that word. That I, that I do love. And I, as you're sitting here talking, I'm thinking about business. I'm thinking about parenting. I'm thinking about uh, all of it. I love the spirit. I love what you're doing with the show. I'm going to have my family. I'm going to queue up PBS and watch some of the episodes. Oh, thank uh, you. I really hope you, please let me know what you think of them. Well, there you go, folks. Monty Moran. Again, you can hear more of the story about what made Chipotle the success it was and how you can apply the principles to your business in Monty's book, Love is Free, Guac is Extra. And again, go to loveisfree.com, buy the book. He'll write in there whatever you want and send it to you. Coming up in Ziegler Show, episode 932, I asked my audience, vocationally, what area or areas of expertise would you like to be known for? Which is really insightful for how you position your business and yourself. Great, insightful responses. Tom Ziegler and I talked through a lot of them. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. 